line 16. Page 28, line 16. Matthew chapter 11, <coughs> verse 16. Jesus says, But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came, neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came, eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Then Jesus began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Thanks, Wes. Um, Very warm welcome to you. If you're kind of fairly new, sorry you've got the work experience kid today, but um, don't worry, the pros are back from next week. Um, what we've just heard, I mean, Storm Kieran is, is uh, just a tiny demonstration of the Lord's almighty power and sovereignty. And so um, let's, let's pray as we, as we look at these difficult words. Father God, we thank you that um, you're sovereign and you're good, uh, that you're in control. Um, we do pray that as we come to difficult themes and subjects, um, we would not... Uh, we'd not dodge, dodge what's in front of us, but we would seek to humbly approach your word and learn what you would teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So uh, over the last couple of months here at Gone Garden Talks, we've been making our way through Matthew 10 um, and 11, as those of you who've been around most of the last couple of months will be aware. And um, we've seen Jesus send out his 12 disciples and equip them with supernatural power. And, and that supernatural power attests to the authority of the one who sent them. And we've heard Jesus warn of the persecution that will come to the disciples and how loyalty to Christ will render division into the hearts of those around his followers. Um, we've also heard Jesus encourage his disciples as to the full and final vindication that belongs to God's kingdom and to the insignificance of earthly opposition when it is pitted against the Almighty. And now this week, uh, we come to the end of this section of Matthew's Gospel and to Jesus' concluding comments regarding the experience of the disciples on this, their first mission trip. We're at a pivot point in Matthew's Gospel, and um, Jesus is making some concluding comments about this this mission. Uh, The passage we're looking at broadly fits into two sections, as you've probably noticed, um, and we'll follow them under the headings in the handout sheets. So firstly, verses 16 to 19, um, a damning condemnation. I think I changed the title last minute, so I'm sorry for whatever's on the sheet, but um, a damning condemnation or exposure. Um, 16 and 17. But what shall I compare this generation 
to, but, but to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. I think in order to understand um, verses 16 and 17, I think it's helpful to be clear on the meaning of Jesus' opening question. What, why, why, what does he mean by, um, why, why does he need to compare um, this generation? So firstly, who are this generation? So if you flip back to Matthew 10, um, verses 5 and 6, um, just a page before, you see that the whole of this section is written in the context of a mission to God's original chosen people. These 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them, go no- nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So that's the context of this generation. Secondly, why does Jesus want to make a comparison? Why does he want to make a comparison? Well, as Leo explained to us um, here a couple of weeks ago when we looked at the previous section, um, the reaction of this generation has been one of overwhelming rejection. Um, Just before this passage, in verses 13 and 14, we see a stark comparison made. It's a comparison between the historic response of God's people Israel to God's messengers, Elijah, we could add in Moses and Abraham. That response was failing, it was faulting, but, but it was responsive. And that's compared with the present respond, response to God's people Israel, um, to God's messengers, John and Jesus. And that's a response of, that, that's, a, that, that's a, a response of, well, total unresponsiveness. Um, so having said that he wants to make a comparison, what picture does Jesus paint with this comparison? The Jewish crowds and their religious leaders are compared to children, and it isn't meant in a flattering way. Um, It's it's perfectly true that later on in in Matthew 18, Jesus uses a comparison with children to hold up children's virtues, um, their innocence, their lowly status. But in our passage, it is quite clear that the comparison is being made to the many attributes of children that everyone gathered here shouldn't want themselves compared. So picture the scene uh, in front of us in these verses. It's a a hot, dusty marketplace. And there are parents busily buying and and selling. And they've deposited their children together to entertain themselves. Um, Sort of like a rudimentary first century creche. Um, And the children have broken up into little groups, as often they do. So there's a group over there. um, And they're having fun playing a game. And and then there's there's a group there. And uh, they're telling stories to each other. And then there's a third group that band together. And they start singing a well-known funeral song that they've heard from their parents. Well, after a while, oi, they shout to the other groups. Why aren't you crying? Why aren't we crying? The other children reply, what do you mean, why aren't we crying? We didn't ask you to sing. We didn't even want you to sing. And quite frankly, we don't even like your singing. Well, can you see the absurdity of it? They're demanding something that they had no right to expect, no authority to command, no reason to ask, and and it's done in a sort of self-obsessed immaturity. Well, that's the children, and that's the crowds and the religious leaders in their response to Jesus. They're irrational, they're irresponsible, and they're immature. If you like, an adult's reaction um, would be rational, responsible, mature. Jesus is highlighting that God's people Israel had all the instructions, 
all the insights required to draw a sensible line from scriptures to the saviour, and instead they react in a petty, petulant and pathetic manner. But as we move on, we see in verses 18 and 19 that the Jewish crowds aren't just immature, they're also inconsistent. When it comes to John the Baptist, verse 18, Jesus says that the crowds accuse him of a sort of nomadic lifestyle, which they mistake for demonic possession. Okay, we might say. So John the Baptist doesn't do it for these people specifically. And um, it's, it's his lifestyle that alarms them, right? Wrong. No. Almost in the same breath, their attention turns to Jesus and his lifestyle. And it is so very different to that of John's, as they say. And apparently that irks them too. Can you see the inconsistency? The crowds, well, they blame the packaging, but in reality, they are displeased by the product. They don't want to accept the message, so they will do anything to ignore the messengers. The end of verse 19, um, I don't know about you guys when when Wes Wes was reading it out, but it seems like a bit of a strange ending to the section. Um, But I think what Jesus is doing here is is pointing to the fact that the crowds irrationally and inconsistently pin their belief on any excuse going rather than the evidence. Um, in fact, anything except the evidence. Jesus and John and all of Jesus' disciples have been out day after day after day and they've been performing miracles. And as we've seen, they, they, these miracles are verifying and validating and corroborating that Jesus is, is exactly what the crowds claim to be looking for. Um, by all means, around your tables after this, have a go at transcribing that last, um, that, that, that end of verse 19, that slightly strange sentence. Um, I've had a go. This is what I think um, Jesus might be saying um, by, this, by this slightly stri- strange saying. I think, he, I think he's saying that despite how some respond, God's true message from God's messengers is being declared right. It is being proved. Um, and it's being, it's being declared right by what God's message and messengers can achieve as we've seen in the previous verses and chapters. And so we see that these crowds are utterly irrational and immature and inconsistent. Um, But I think it's important to say that this isn't like some sort of minor indiscretion that they're committing. To say that you seek the saviour and then ignore all the signs, that's defiance and it's blindness and it's hypocrisy And as we see in verses 20 to 24, this defiance is incredibly dangerous. So let's have another look at those verses. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you, And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. I don't think we can skip lightly over these verses. They are a terrifying warning. To be denounced by Jesus, to be condemned by the creator and judge of the world... There is no worse thing that become become any man or woman who ever breathed. I don't know if you notice the cities that are denounced. 
Um, uh, sorry, I didn't know if you noticed why the cities are denounced. Um, it isn't actually because they don't clamour for Jesus. It isn't because they don't follow the disciples. It isn't because they don't ask for more miracles. Um, it isn't even because they don't show interest. Um, we've seen the crowds are perfectly willing to, to show interest, but it's because it's led none of them to repent. Unless we miss the point, unless, unless we miss the point, verse 20, Jesus is in the repenting business. And these children, they don't have any interest in doing so. Notice also the names of the cities that are mentioned. In Old Testament terms, as I'm sure some of you know, this is like a spiritual list of the haves and have-nots. So you've got the haves, Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum, God's people, cities in the light, full of people chosen by God and, and equipped with his law. That's the haves. The have-nots, Tyre, Sidon, Sodom, cities in darkness, bereft of the knowledge of God, dens of iniquity. And so if you think about the comparison that's going on here, it's, it's, it's pretty nuts. If you, if you, if you could excuse a, a little football analogy for a moment. Last weekend it was the, um, it was the Manchester derby. Um, most of you, I hope, know that's Manchester United and Manchester City playing each other, the two big teams in the town. And um, they went head-to-head -head on Sunday. And I just want you to imagine for a second that the teams have done a warm-up and they've gone back to their, their dressing rooms and they're getting ready to go out on the pitch and, and play the match. Um, and Pep Guardiola, who's the Man City manager, he's a sort of bald head of football genius, and he strides into his um, team's dressing room um, and he delivers the pre-match rallying cry to the team. Silence falls. He's delivered the message and it's fallen on deaf ears. It's incomprehensible. And then imagine if he walks across the corridor to the dressing room of the home team, Man United. There could barely be a less popular figure in the building than this guy. And he opens the door, and he's greeted with expectant eyes and open ears. Players hungry to hear what he has to say. Jesus' team was meant to be God's people. It was meant to be the cities of Israel. Yet Jesus suggests that the very places that couldn't be further from God, well, even there, he would get a better hearing. Um, I think it's worth saying here, to slightly contradict my analogy, that it is tempting to think this as like, it's about the relative good of the pagan cities versus the relative bad of, of, the, of the cities of Israel. But I, I don't think that's the central point. And I don't think it is because places like Tyre, Sidon, Sodom, um, places without, without without um, access to God's law, they, they, they were pretty hopeless places. And I think actually what God's doing here is he's making a stark, sorry, Jesus is doing, he's making a stark comparison of just how bad things are for Israel, rather than saying that things are okay for those pagan cities. Um, and what is it that waits for the defiant cities, for the unrepentant people, for the denounced? Well, Listen to the language of verses 22 to 24. It will be more bearable on the day of judgment. You will be brought down to Hades, that is, hell. You will be, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment. Just a few extracts from those verses. In case we were in any doubt as to what it looks like if we don't repent, that is, if we're denounced by Jesus, well, it is laid out starkly here. It matters hugely that Jesus dwells 
extensively on hell and judgment. It matters because everyone needs the warning. It matters because judgment is the evidence that God takes evil seriously and values justice highly. I don't know if you've ever heard people talk about certain kind of groups of Christians or preachers as like hell and brimstone or fire and brimstone, that sort of thing. Is that familiar to anyone? I think, I think that's, um, I guess, there's maybe, they might mean one of two things. So firstly, they might mean sort of particular communities of people who, who sort of think it's their job to denounce and to judge. And, I, and I, I don't think that's right. I don't think there's anything here that suggests that that's their job. Um, but they might also... Um, they might also be referring to the fact that, in other cases, if you kindly teach the whole of God's word, rather than just the sort of comfortable bits, um, it means that a community that handle, handles God's words comprehensively and seriously has to speak of these matters in order to have any integrity. To put it another way, if you've come into contact with a Christian community that refuses to share these bits of the Bible, it might be worth asking, what are they trying to hide? Do they care to warn people how high the stakes are for rightly responding to Jesus? Do they want people to know that God <coughs> hates evil? Well, as we conclude, let, let us dwell on the fact that there surely can be no better news for sinners like you and I, that the agony of judgment and hell is not inevitable. Most of us are probably from Tyre and Sidon and Sodom, that is to say, not literally, um, but we're, most of us are probably Gentiles, not part of God's original king, people, Israel. But amongst the dismal condemnation in these verses, there is a chink of light, the first hints of what was to come, that God's people were to be made up of all people from all cities <coughs> across all of the world, because the offer of salvation through repentance is open to every single one of us. This really tough passage that Wes very kindly asked me to speak on um, it's pretty unrelenting. Um, but as we finish, let's consider some encouragements that it absolutely guarantees. Firstly, verses 18 and 19, if we flip back to those, inconsistent treatment, like the hypocritical slights against John and Jesus, is the inevitable hallmark of the Christian experience. Here in London, in barely a generation, Christians have gone from being considered a bit pitiable um, so being seen as dangerous, um, we've gone, we've sort of morphed from Ned Flanders to Mr. Burns. Um, what's changed? Well, it, it wasn't the message of the Bible that, that's changed. And I think we can take solace from the inconsistent, to, we can take solace from the fact that the inconsistency with which the believer is treated is at least as old as the inconsistency that we see aimed at John and Jesus. I think secondly on these verses, we need not waste our efforts in endlessly second-guessing how to package our message and our lives to compel people to take Jesus seriously. It, it didn't make a difference to Jesus and John, but their lifestyles were very different, um, as, as the crowd saw it. And, it. and it won't work for us. Now, that isn't to say that the Christian's conduct doesn't matter. Uh, no, but it is to say that it is unlikely that if you were a little bit more something, people would suddenly get the gospel. If you're a little bit more something else, people would suddenly get the gospel. And this can allow us to be liberated from the pressure to impress people. And it does allow us to be forearmed that people's blindness can only be cured by God. Finally, verse 20, Jesus has made it abundantly clear that 
that judgment is not inevitable. And for all that hell is terrifying, our reaction surely has to be to interrogate our repentance. Have we really turned to Jesus? And if we have, to find ourselves utterly secure in this repentance. And to be spurned to go on living in it. That six-letter word, repent, it is the only necessary response to be saved. It is the necessary response to be saved, sorry, but it is the only necessary response to be saved. There is nothing more and there is nothing less. What I pray as we finish. We thank you, Father God, that you take all that is wrong seriously and that it grieves you and that pain and suffering and sin in the world is displeasing to you. And we thank you that despite every person's sin, you have offered a way through repentance. We do pray that we would take your judgment seriously. We do pray that we would treat the Lord Jesus with consistency, rationally. And we pray that we would um, look on those who don't know you and have great pity um, for them and be spurned um, to speak of Jesus to them. Amen. Amen.